Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. Our first guest is Michael Patak. Uh, he is the founder and chief visionary officer of a company called Top Step, also known as Top Step Trader. Uh, Michael's background is uh, as a trader himself, and during those years, he saw an opportunity for aspiring traders to become funded traders after proving their ability in a simulated training platform. Uh, That platform has evolved over the years, but uh, still exists today. And if it is something you're interested in checking out, go to topsteptrader.com. Michael founded the company in 2010 and over the years uh, was scrapping together this small business that uh, ultimately reached about 10 people and a million dollars in revenue. And it was around that time in 2015 that uh, he decided to enroll in the Junto Institute's apprenticeship program. And since then, the company's more than tripled in, in size. And that has been a result of both Michael's efforts, but also the rest of his team. And in the last couple of years, led by their new CEO, Jay Rudman, which is one of my favorite stories in Junto because Jay was Michael's CEO mentor during the program. Uh, the other key person in the history of Michael's success with Top Step and Top Step's success as well is uh, the first hire that he brought on, uh, Melissa Footlick, who became and still is chief operating officer of the company. We're actually in process right now of creating a detailed case study of Top Step Trader as a business, and um, I'm excited for that to be released in the next uh, several weeks, if not a couple of months. Welcome, Michael. Awesome to have you here today. Hey, Raman. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. So, Michael, I like to start um, these conversations with the question, uh, what your first recollection is of leadership in your life? My first recollection? It would be when uh, my dad uh, owned a meatpacking plant. He mm. had a uh, about 500 employees, um, mm. and he was a man of the people. And I really saw how... Uh, and he had a partner, and the partner they called them the, the bean counter, so so to speak, and did the money, and, and was always in the office, was never with the people. So my dad, I, I would see him walk out uh, in the the conveyor lines, and there's hundreds of people out there talking to everybody, uh, shaking their hand, and patting them on the back, and telling them good work, and and just really making everybody smile and, and making their their day. Uh, you know, everybody gets up and they're, they're conveyor line. So it's literally doing the same thing every day. And he would go out there and he literally, uh, was a man of the people. He mm-hmm. did not put himself above them. Uh, if anything, he would grab a broom if uh, it'd help out. If there was one sitting right next to it and he was walking by and the guy was sweeping the halls, he would jump in there and help out a little bit, chat with him a little bit and then carry on with his day. And that leadership style was to me the, uh, at the time I was just like, that's my dad. That's mm-hmm. cool. And because it's just everybody liked them, mm-hmm. but I didn't really realize that was just being a great leader back then because uh, I was young. Um, but yeah, that was my first recollection. Nice. That's a, that's a great story. And I love the fact that it's meatpacking, something that we don't even mm-hmm. think about or, mm-hmm. or hear about a whole lot today. I just realized that you come from the world of trading and in Chicago, trading is like a legacy industry. As many people know, it's been here for... Uh, almost a couple centuries now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've met and have gotten to know, and I'm friends with a handful of traders. And when it comes to this idea of vulnerability, humility, and acknowledging personal limitations, I imagine that there are some people who sit there wondering, "Yeah, I don't see that being very common amongst traders." Uh-huh. That's true. I mean, I, I think I was a, I was kind of a rare breed, and, and I wouldn't say that in like a cocky way, but. I'm an open-minded individual and I'm ever learning. And in trading, you almost have to be open-minded and ever learning because you can't say it's going to do this or it's going to do that when you're buying, uh, when you're getting long or shorter in the markets. Um, for one, that's an amateur move at trading is to say it's going to do this. People are like, no, the market's going to do whatever the market's going to do. It's your job to understand what you're going to do and how you know to, to, to take that information and then what to do with it. So people like to perceive things are happening a certain way. But I like to take the open-minded approach. Uh, I've, you know, there's a fixed-minded uh, and then there's the open-minded. 
um, approach. And when you stay open-minded, you're ever learning. You're not done. You're not finished unless you're finishing the business. Uh, and, and you can take that over into your personal life. Um, always learning from every situation. Uh, I'm a big, you know, let's just get it going and we can learn as we go. Um, because then we'll find our way, we'll find our traction and we'll find the growth. I want to talk about this idea of open-mindedness. That's an intriguing topic because I think first of all, a lot of us entrepreneurs would like to think that we're uh, filled with open-mindedness. But from my experience as human beings, we all have a certain degree of open-mindedness and so much of it is contextual, depends on the circumstances. How do you struggle with open-mindedness? When do you struggle? When I was younger, uh, I'm 40 now, I guess before... 30. I started becoming open-minded. Again, I talked to you about uh, my parents getting divorced and my my uh, friend dying. And, and uh, that affected me because some of the things that I would always push upon like my friend or and things I saw were, were my way of seeing things. It wasn't anybody else's way. It's my way of seeing it. And my way is the right way. Mm-hmm. And that was um, not good for relationships. I saw how it broke up my parents' family. Uh, how the kind of some of the things my friends and I, my friend and I used to talk about before he passed away. You know, it was religion talk. And it was like, hey, if you don't believe this way, you're not going to where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And then he passes away. I'm like, holy cow, that was the coolest guy, the greatest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And he passed away. And if I'm not, if he's not in where I said I was to him, where I, where I, uh, he should end up if you follow this religion, because I was very like, um, you know, a good Christian boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, and, and from Nebraska. So I was very like, this is the way or the highway and you should be believing like that. So to stay open-minded is ever growing and ever evolving. And I think that's the best way you can live as a human being because it's the most open to others. Mm-hmm. So you've talked a little bit about how you grew up in a religious household, mm-hmm. uh, in a re- religious community, mm-hmm. and that religion was a big part of your life growing up. Would love to hear how that has evolved over the course of your life and um, whether it's from a religion standpoint or spirituality standpoint and um, how that plays a part in your life today. Well, let's put it this way, it's evolved quite a bit. Uh, As I think at the age of 12 or 13, I used to hand out flyers at at the mall with my parents, repent of your sins type stuff. And Hmm. and the church handed it to us and they said, hey, this weekend, everybody's going to go do this. And if you didn't believe this way, then you're going to this eternal pit of hell. And, and, and that was, uh, that was um, one way that, uh, you know, I forced my beliefs on people because that's how I told. Um, that's moved and, and, and grown. Um, I'm kind of total dead. I couldn't even watch The Simpsons because they cussed in it hmm. um, all the way to uh, – um, we're just very, it was a very religious family. And then when my parents got divorced, the church was not really uh, uh, into keen on that. And they said, you got to work it out. But it wasn't, it wasn't a healthy relationship even for them. So they didn't work it out. And the church kind of pushed them out. And then all this stuff that I started seeing, I'm like, well, this isn't the, the love that religion or what I, what I always thought it would be. And, and I started kind of staying, again, open-minded where my ways may not be the right way. I have, uh, what I think I call it, I have a um, strong opinions weekly held. That's a big thing. Um, and, and if you do that, you have strong opinions weekly hell. You can still have a voice. You can still have confidence. You can still have that leadership. Uh, but when it's weekly held, that, that's basically staying open to others, uh, others' thoughts, others' opinions. Um, you know, we have a big thing, too, of diversity at Top Step. And it's, uh, people think it's like race and religion. But no, it's diversity. Oh, it's that, but it's also diversity of thought. You know, it's, it's being open to different ways that people think. And, and having the background I have, I love it. I came from the country, uh, grew up in a really religious family. Um, now, I mean, I have, I have faith and I have beliefs. I have all that. But I'm always open to learning. I want to hear what you have to say. And let's talk about it. And, and my way is not the way. Neither is yours. So let's just figure out how to, you know, make some sense of things. Yeah. <laughs> but what I find really interesting about this is personally, in the time we've uh, known each other, it's been mostly in the context of business. Mm-hmm. And one area that you have shown a lot of passion is the company's core values mm-hmm. and the company's beliefs. And it's fascinating now all of a sudden to see this with the the light of religion and spirituality shining on it. Well, light. I'm so passionate uh, uh, about the, the mission, vision, values because I had these beliefs and strong, but they were never on a wall. 
They were never, nobody knew them, but I, I saw them in my wall every single day of my, of my mind and in my heart. And, and it would always exude out of me of, of what I believed in, what I stood for uh, as a company mission and, and why I'm doing this as uh, top step and things like that. And that does take a play in how I was raised with the church and having strong beliefs and all that. So there's a, there's a spillover there mm. of, uh, leading people to, to God back in the days. And then now you're like leading people to this problem that you're trying to solve for them to help them out and improve their life and their quality and all that kind of stuff. So and to go from like a church boy to an entrepreneur, it's, 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 uh, they, they both kind of help out each other. I'm glad I had that in the beginning yeah. and it's helped me to develop who I've become. Yeah. That's awesome. So a couple of years ago, you made a very bold and courageous move to step down as CEO of the company that you personally founded, mm -hmm. that you bootstrapped, and that was your baby. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, at the time you were, if not close to 100% owner, yep, you were 100% owner, right? Yep. yep. And you handed the reins over to Jay Rudman, who mm -hmm. happened to be your mentor in Hundo, um, who has shepherded the company's last couple of years in marvelous fashion. Um, talk about what was going through your head in those few months leading up to that. Well, here's how it all happened. Uh, so I'm not very good at people management. So we talked about limitations things. I'm not very good at people management. I want to be a part of the team. Mm -hmm. But when I manage people, I do it in a really command and control way. And I don't know I'm doing it. It's just my approach. Right. So I needed to get myself out of that position. So I had nobody that I uh, managed except one person. And that was my personal assistant. <laughs> so um, I was CEO uh, at the time and, and my uh, personal assistant, uh, Kathleen, came into the office and she goes, Michael. And when she said that, I go, oh, man, what? And she's like, I'm giving you my two weeks. And right away, and I had been through Junto and, and, and I was in a good spot. And I'm like, I have one person that, that I like reports to me and I got to figure out, is this because of me? And I go, I go, is it because of me? She's like, well, she goes, I'm leaving. Um, going to do this other thing I'm passionate about. I go, does any of this have to do with, with me? She's like, yes. She's like, you're hard, you're hard to please and you're hard to work with. And because I knew, I, I knew I, she was the only person I was like, I was still command and control with her a bit. That was the last person because I'm like, oh, personal assistant. I can do that. That's how it's supposed to happen. And, and that's why I got a personal assistant because I could keep, <laughs> I need this done. I need that done. Do that. And that is no, that's not healthy for anybody. Nobody wants to be uh, that person on the other end of it. And I knew that, it, that literally to make everything that I wanted in my life to, to, to improve or get better, I needed to again, get out of my own uh, way yet again. So I did not get a personal assistant. I stepped aside as CEO and put myself as chief visionary officer. I was very, um, and if people are, you made up that title. No, I researched it, <laughs> existed. And, and also it, it really aligned with what I believed in every single day is I focused on the, uh, the, the product that we put out there, the users, the traders, and uh, just always uh, improving uh, what we're currently doing to to drive towards our vision and our mission to help professionalize traders' passion, improve and and help help them safely engage with the markets. These are all things I felt really passionate about because in my twenties I lost three thirty thousand dollars trading accounts, and that's I don't want anybody else to go through that. But the people managing part of it, uh, of running a company, the day to day, all that stuff, I wasn't really that good at. And I'm shocked that a lot of founders think that they're good at all that stuff. And it's, it's more liberating and less weight on the shoulders to find uh, somebody. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, have Jay, uh, you know, there and, and Jay was interested and I was interested and we talked about it and I worked, uh, talked to Melissa, my COO about it. She's been with me since the very beginning. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a big change, but it was probably the best change I made for in my top step career. Yeah. So you brought up Melissa and in addition to Melissa, back when you guys did Unto, uh, Aaron was also mm -hmm. involved in the program. So back then you guys only had like 10 or 12 people. Mm -hmm. And so women have always been a key part of Top Step's uh, history. Mm -hmm. And again, back to this idea that this is a company that was founded by a trader. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, as somebody who's a little bit older who saw the trading industry in Chicago, there weren't a lot of women in it. Nope. Nope. This is not unusual um, in the trading world. But even today with 40 some people, you guys have, I mean, it's like this was, it was baked. We have more women on the leadership team and the cap table than men. 
Wow, on the yeah. cap table. I didn't know uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Uh, what has that done for you as a male leader of a company? And then B, what has it done for the company? After Junto, um, I must have went through a lot because she put up with me before Junto. Mm-hmm. Junto is like the big pivotal uh, time in our in the top step uh, uh, world. But um, yeah, she, uh, you know, I trusted her. Uh, I, I didn't trust anybody before. Yeah, we kind of went into that earlier, but uh, I trusted Melissa to, uh, she was very passionate about the culture. She's very passionate about helping people. I think she was going to do a nonprofit before mm. uh, Top Step, um, before I uh, said, hey, Melissa, why don't you join me? Uh, and she rose up the ranks and became COO and, and she did it all on her own and she kicked ass. And uh, she helped build that culture. She, she didn't help. She did build that culture almost with her two hands. And I just got out of her way. So I'm not going to get take too much credit for it. I just got out of Melissa's way, let her build the culture. And then I, the only thing I really had to do is trust. So, and that can be the hardest part, for, especially for uh, us as founders and, and is, is trusting. But once you trust, and you don't really have to do too much of the heavy lifting, but you have to support uh, things that she does. And she's done the coolest stuff. And the, the women that she's brought uh, to that we've uh, added to the team have been incredible. Uh, some in- tremendously talented, uh, I was going to say folks there, but, but women. Yeah. And, and just kind of what we've done with the culture. And um, I think we have a paternity leave uh, that is like three it's crazy. It's 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 beats everybody. Mm-hmm. I know that because that was a whole big thing. Is like we want to take care of women. They go through a, 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 a the craziest, coolest time, and and they're giving birth and all that. And I just had a baby, so I can uh, understand going so, through all that. So you mean maternity? Maternity, yes, right? yes. Because you said paternity. But, well, well, we just added paternity, but it's on also it because you just had a kid for your own. Yes, so that's why. So, <laughs> so exactly, it was it was uh, maternity first. Uh, and I think it was like two months, and I think it's like three months now. And then uh, we had a paternity now. I mean, mm-hmm. It should be fair to for the, the guys out there too. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have you learned about leadership in the last four to five years? And I know it's a big question. So, well, trust is the big one. Uh, giving people autonomy. Uh, good leaders don't micromanage. They're not in there uh, hovering uh, over you know whomever they're. Uh, they're, they're trying to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're doing, uh, they're pointing people in a direction. Uh, and that's kind of the, the chief visionary role that I have is pointing everybody towards our vision, our mission, and saying, like, uh, here's our, our values. Here's, mm-hmm. you know, how we make decisions. And that, that is kind of the um, shepherd herding that I do. Uh, and and that I've seen good leaders do is just that's the point of it. And then the, your your team, your lead, your other leaders um, rise up and they go yes. And then they can figure out the best way to to make this happen, make this vision happen, drive home on our mission each day, and ensure that the uh, values are being met in everything we do. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. So I love that you say that because. This is still a fairly small company. It's got 40 some people and it has a CEO, an accomplished CEO, somebody who has started companies in the past, who has sold companies in the past, is a very capable executive, yet you are the one still holding the vision. Mm-hmm. Whereas in most cases, the CEO is the one for a company this size with that vision in place. Mm-hmm. Um, what has that been like? Well, when, uh, when Jay came in as CEO and, and uh, I put myself as chief visionary officer, we really defined what we're accountable for. And uh, I I was always to be the champion of the vision. Uh, Jay did not want to take the role of the vision and, and uh, rightfully so. And, and he said, this is where you're suited. And, and it allowed me to focus all of my energy on that. Uh, and, and again, that helps uh, be the shepherd of, of, I'm not saying the sheep of a team, but like, we're all like trying to Mm -hmm. guide this towards this vision that we're trying to go to. So what you're saying is that Jay effectively acknowledged his own limitation. Not that he couldn't have a vision, but in this case, maybe it wasn't prudent for him to bring his vision because yours was so tangible and palpable. Yes. Jay helped, uh, take, my vision and articulate it better in the organization. That's mm. what I was. I'm not very good at articulating things. I see it in my head uh, and, and in my mind. I think about it constantly, mm-hmm. but to get it out there, uh, it's some. It's very challenging. Um, <clears throat> so Jay, I remember when we uh, uh, 
sat down and talked about our roles and my role and his role and and all that kind of stuff. And, and basically he's like, Michael, the vision, that's that's yours. Mm. And he's like, I'm not taking that away from you. I don't even want that. Um, he's not, it's not my strengths uh, and what I'm doing here at Top Step. So that was something that um, I had a, a ton of respect because that made me feel really comfortable and it showed his trust for me. And that uh, helped me understand that, man, Jay's a great leader. And that that mentoring of, of just even saying that helped me put more trust into him, into the others in the organization to know that this vision that, that I have and why I started Top Step will have the best damn chance to come to fruition with yeah. these folks. In the past couple of years, you've gotten engaged, mm-hmm. you've gotten married, and you've had your first child. And I got another one on the way. Congratulations. <laughs> That's coming on the heels of these changes in the business with the company growing, its culture changing, uh, you stepping down as CEO, but still being involved in the direction of the company, um, and you experiencing your own growth. Mm-hmm. How did all of the work that you did three, four, five years ago on yourself and your company affect you personally? I want to say, if I were to respond to that, I would say like everything I did in in, in the past. This is like the fruits of your, fruits of my labor. Like it's it's enjoy it, and now I can bring it. Now I can take everything I did uh, and learned and and was open to and and vulnerable and and all those things that that then helps you move into this person that you want to be, and that is when I'm starting my family. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of the coolest part right now is I'm starting my family after <clears throat> I, I've learned so much and grown so much. And you're never, again, I'm open mind. you're never done growing. So I still always have things that are, I have to work on. Uh, bad habits die hard. And and But to take everything I've learned and to have the culture we have uh, at Top Step and then now just to be starting a family uh, and, and uh, a baby that, uh, that um, Holden was born last year and I got another one on the way. It's for me, the and I'm 40. So it's like the perfect time. There's no midlife crisis that's going to happen here because I'm really, really excited because I've worked my butt off mm-hmm. both uh, personally and professionally uh, and, and top step and, and uh, uh, started gaining success. And and all that was, was literally... Uh, if this is the, the 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 fruits of my labor to to bring this over into my family life, done. That's exactly why I did it. So I'm still new to this whole podcast thing and doing interviews. And as much as I've been trying to follow my outline, I'm disappointed that I didn't remember to close um, that interview with Michael with an appreciation. And to make matters doubly worse, I did the exact same thing with uh, the interview that we're about to listen to with Gay Vandenhamber. But fortunately, since I record this segment after doing the interviews, I'm able to still include an appreciation of each one. What I appreciate about Michael is his passion. Uh, That has come out loud and clear uh, over the years, both in person and in writing and Hopefully it came through in that conversation that we just had. Uh, He is passionate about his product, his business, the learning that he does, the growth that he pursues, his wife, his children, skiing, travel. Um, His his passion is is truly infectious, uh, has helped the company and the people that are a part of it, and I know is going to create joy for many years to come for a lot of people. So we're now going to uh, listen to our conversation with Gay Vanden Homburg. Um, and Gay is uh, just one of the most delightful people I've had the privilege of getting to know over the years. Uh, she is an incredibly successful, high-performing, and seasoned executive. Um, very driven, but with the biggest heart. And she has a fascinating story, which uh, she'll share in this conversation, about when she became CEO for the first time and how she learned a very hard lesson that shaped her for many years to come, and frankly, uh, is is the reason why she's even a mentor in Junto. Uh, she's been doing great work in leadership uh, for the past several years, focused mostly on larger companies, uh, mid-sized firms, and, and Fortune 500 companies, and has been a uh, instructor and mentor at Junto uh, since our very beginning, and is amongst our um, top-rated instructors at that. She's also worked very closely with several of the companies, uh, coincidentally, including Top Step Trader, 
uh, where she's um, led some workshops and training sessions. Welcome, Gay. Great to have you today. I'm happy to be here. What I want to start with is what I typically have been starting each of these uh, interviews with, and that is your first uh, story of leadership, the first recollection you have of leadership in action. Yeah, uh, such a good question. My first recollection of leadership in action um, was not something that I labeled leadership, but at some level, what I saw was people getting to influence what was going to happen and then being part of making it happen. And that has impacted my view and my lens of leadership um, because it's about making things happen and getting things done. So tell us what happened. I was in high school and I was a sophomore in high school and I was um, actually I was a freshman in high school. I was dating a senior and he was the president of the student council. And I got to see all the things that he was making happen in terms of how homecoming dance was going and the winter festival stuff and the senior skip day and the turnaround day. And I saw all of these things and I like, how does, how does he do that? And so I think I was just watching from afar. And so I then, you know, when I was a sophomore, I was like, I, I want to do some of this stuff. And so then I started getting involved in things and becoming a leader in my high school and, and kind of living out some of that because I, I witnessed it. So Let's get into this story because to me, it kind of sets the tone for a lot of what we're probably going to talk about. Tell us that story of how you learned about empathy. Yeah. So I learned about empathy the hard way um, by not expressing empathy. I was promoted into a CEO role of a company. The founder um, sold it to a large publicly traded French firm. They wanted to promote someone within uh, to be the CEO, and so they chose me. And I had never been a CEO, and I was extremely green, but I had what I think in retrospect is a little bit of arrogance about leadership um, because I'd been a leader my whole life. Um, in high school, I remember running into uh, the one of the counselors, I don't know, five years later, and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You ran the school. Uh, and I'm like, well, oh, really? That was your impression of me? And I was the president of my sorority and I was always asked to lead things. And so I had this sort of cocky attitude that I was a good leader. Well, I wasn't. I learned a really tough lesson there um, that it's not about only getting things done. It's about getting things done through people. Um, and respecting people and valuing people. And it, it was a really interesting setting, right? Because the founder sold the business. I was chosen to be CEO. There were others who had wanted that role. Um, and I was really focused on proving I could do it and getting results. And so my entire mindset was about results, 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 results. And I forgot that I was needed to get those results through people. This is a professional services firm, right? Um, and so I forgot that lesson. And um, one day, one of the people that um, reported to me sort of pulled me aside and said, basically told me that, hey, you know, you're forgetting to win the hearts and minds of your people. You're just trying to get results. And it's really not working very well. And I knew something wasn't right, but I was oblivious to, um, to really what was, what was wrong. And so I appreciated that feedback. But man, was that hard to hear because I thought I was such a great leader. Um, but it was hard to hear. And, and what I learned was um, the results are the lagging indicator. The leading indicator is how your people are engaged and how they're responding and what they're doing. And so that's what counts. So what, what took place then after that? What shifted for you and how did you then do something with that quote unquote new information? I think it took a while for that to set in. Um, and I don't think I really developed a full appreciation for that until after I left the organization and got some distance from it um, and saw, um, saw how I could have done some things differently. 
And so the next um, organization I was with, I was really super aware of it. I, I was running a, a small organization again, and I was I was really aware of how I needed to show up differently. Um, and I started trying to build some muscles around it. Um, and it's not easy mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're so results oriented. That story, when I heard it for the first time, was what convinced me that you were the right person to uh, lead um, our class on uh, leadership and social awareness. Uh, social awareness being one of the four domains of emotional intelligence uh, based on the work that Daniel Goleman has done. Uh, would love for you to share some thoughts that you have on this topic of social awareness um, and empathy and what you have gotten from this process of kind of reflecting on your own experience and then kind of sharing that with other people. Yeah. So, you know, I think emotional intelligence and I'll say social awareness um, as part of that, I think a lot of people, myself included, think of that as a soft skill and it's really not that important. And how does that really impact results? And in fact, it may not impact results when you're too socially aware or you have too much empathy. And I will admit that I, I still have, I still harbor some of that. I still think, man, can I, am I a little bit too, do I have too much empathy? Am I, am I getting a little soft here? Um, and I, I worry about that. Um, but what I know is that when I look at people who I respect as leaders is that they, they, they have that capability and they're really getting the best out of their people because they, they know how to get the best out of their people. They're aware of what motivates them. They're aware of how they're impacting what they do, how that's impacting them and, and what they're doing that's driving the results. As I like to share in Junto quite a bit, uh, I'm not a big fan of the word weakness because I see it as something that's uh, static. It's, it's, it doesn't connote this idea of uh, change and something that's dynamic. And instead, I like to use the word limits. Um, and actually, even in Daniel Goleman's work, uh, they talk about that when it comes to self-awareness, that rather than focusing on our strengths and weaknesses, that it's better for us to focus on our strengths and limits. Because limits, it creates this awareness of uh, something that's dynamic. Mm-hmm. What is a limit today doesn't mean that I can't make it better down the road. And it doesn't mean that it has to be a weakness. One of my um, coaches and mentors in life said to me, Gay, your Achilles heel is your self-doubt. And so that to me is a personal limit and my biggest personal limit. And so how do I deal with that? I talk to myself about it a lot. Mm. Um, and and when, I'm, when I'm finding myself hesitating about something, I really say, wait a minute, is this your self-doubt getting in the way? See if you can just step into that discomfort and move through it. It is super hard. Um, it is super hard. But it's number one, being aware of it, right? Um, and then number two, moving out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Talk a little, bit, a little bit about accountability, whether it's this model, whether it's your beliefs on it, um, what people can do to just make an incremental improvement, mm-hmm. which I know is something that you have been uh, doing quite a bit of work on in your um, current role. But also, it sounds like it's something that you take very seriously, that while you may not have used the same model historically that you you know today use you you bring a lot of passion and interest in it and a lot of conviction which is i think why people are positively affected by it so um i uh, when i think about accountability now um the the definition of accountability i use because this is what the organization i work for uses is it's a personal choice it's a personal choice to rise above whatever circumstances you're facing and do what you need to do to 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 get the results you're looking for um, and I think about that as something I learned. I just learned it growing up. So my parents were both immigrants from the Netherlands. And, and the lesson I learned from the way they lived their lives was, hey, you get to decide on your future. This is about self-determination. Um, and so I, uh, I believe personal accountability is so critical. And it's so empowering. You know, right now, when we hear the word accountability in organizations, we have this negative view of it, which is, you know, oh, who do we have to hold accountable for screwing something up? And I truly believe that if we if we think about it, accountability is is empowering. It helps us do things that we might not otherwise do. And um, 
I realized that one of my hot buttons is people that don't take personal accountability. I was with an organization this morning and, it, and I was surrounded by people that were blaming others and didn't see that they had control. Hmm. And it made me crazy. I walked out of there thinking maybe that's where my migraine came from. <laughs> <laughs> I was struck by something that you said that you probably didn't, I don't think you said it intentionally because uh. <laughs> we've talked a lot over the years and I haven't used, heard you use it regularly, consistently, but you said, I get to, you were talking about your parents. And I love that phrase because um, I've heard several people refer to it in the context of um, when we are doing things that we don't want to, we oftentimes will say, oh, I have to do this. Mm. I have to do that. Mm. And instead, back to this idea of self-talk, that a different way of spinning it is I get to do something. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's this privilege. And, and so, especially as you talk about choice, that um, I have to communicates this idea of I don't have choice, but I get to. To some, it doesn't say I have choice, but it, it kind of implies more in that direction that yeah, we have choice. Absolutely, I just I I think it's huge, and and the the story I like to tell around that is the one of of um, oh I'm going to forget his name the the um, Nazi concentration camp survivor oh the wrote the Man's Search for Meaning oh, Victor, Victor Frankel. Frankel Victor Frankel who yep. said you know one of the things he learned. As a survivor, was they can you can take everything away from me, but still, what you cannot take away from me is my decision to my my choice to decide how I'm going to react to something. Mm -hmm. And I thought that is just so powerful, right? That and that's so empowering. Now, I will say, at times, it can be a little bit like, oh man, this is all my fault, and you just take you you can be can you be overly accountable? I don't know. But, um, but I just, I choose to look at it as incredibly empowering because it takes away any limits, right? Mm -hmm. Takes away limits. I appreciate you bringing up Victor Frankel because just last week we held a session for our uh, masterclass in emotional intelligence. And I shared this quote from his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And here it is. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Ooh, ooh. I use that first part of that sentence, but I missed that last part of that sentence, and that is powerful. In addition to accountability, you do a lot of work in company culture. Yeah. What are you seeing and hearing these days? Because you work with a lot of larger companies. Whereas we at Junto, as you know, work with a lot of smaller companies and they're able to, they're much more nimble. They're able to effect change quicker. They're more progressive. They adopt quote unquote cutting edge ideas um, easier. And I'm always fascinated by what's happening in larger companies, especially those that are trying to change their culture. They're, mm -hmm. they're trying to move this cruise ship yeah. versus a speedboat. Yeah. Uh, but what are you seeing and hearing these days when it comes to culture in, in these larger companies, right? Without naming your clients. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, it's exactly what you're referencing that a small company can do. I, I think every organization that I'm working with right now is struggling with the pace of change and mm. how do, how do we as a company keep pace with that so that we can stay competitive and, you know, it depends on what industry you're in, but some are, I'll say are in worse shape than others because of, um, you know, because of the industry they're in, but every single one, um, it's about innovation and it's about agility. They want to see decisions pushed lower in the organization, and they want people to be able to um, make those decisions in a way that's aligned with, with the company values and the company goals and all that sort of thing. So they want, they want things pushed, pushed lower, lower in the organization, and they want people to take accountability. So this accountability thing is just really big, too, because people are, I can't tell you the number of organizations I work with. Where there's like a fear, there's a fear of telling truth to power. There's a fear of taking a risk. There's a fear of making a decision. And so first, you've got to help get the culture, get rid of some of that, right? Because if you can't do that, then you're never going to get decisions moving, moving down. And so, getting people to take accountability for making some of those decisions lower in the organization um, happens after some of these other things get addressed. And have you seen that actually happen? Have you seen that type of behavioral change? I, in spot, yeah, I, I'm I'm working with an organization now where it, it, it's it hasn't it's they've been working on this for probably I don't know nine months, and there's one particular division where the leader is taking this really seriously, 
And you bet, I am seeing, hmm. I am seeing that happen. Um, in fact, I'm seeing him catch himself when he starts acting um, in ways that he knows will create fear. He's like, oh, wait, I'm catching myself. I didn't mean to do that. Look, here's what I'm really trying to do and, and, and work with me on this. And so, yeah, but you know what? Guess what? It comes down to the leader. It comes down to the leader. Yeah. If the leader isn't modeling it and if the leader isn't serious about it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, because that's one of the things that is always fascinating to me when it comes to larger organizations. And smaller ones, it's different. We just have fewer people. So there is a little, there's less um, variance. There's less room for error. And and secondly, if I'm the leader of a small company of 10, 20, 50 people, and I see that one person can't change or won't change, it's easy for me to let that person go. Mm-hmm. But in a large organization, it's not as easy. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm really fascinated by is in these large organizations, not only does behavioral change have to happen in a vacuum, but there have to be a lot of people to demonstrate that a behavioral change over a longer period of time yeah. for it to really have an impact on the company. Yeah. And you're right. And, and it's, it's harder. It's harder to, and I, we call it sometimes the frozen middle um, because mm-hmm. it, you know, it starts, it starts with leaders starting to display different behaviors. Um, but then if it doesn't start getting through the whole organization, like you're saying, it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. And so it's that, that middle group that oftentimes things get stuck at and you got to put some extra emphasis there, but yeah. yeah, that's the problem with the bigger organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so your, your, uh, work is almost entirely in this context of leadership. How do you define leadership? The definition of leadership that, and this is not going to be as articulate as I like, but it's, it, it's is having um, having a place where where you want to go, like having a having a vision of what you want to do, what you want to accomplish, and being able to inspire and engage others in that um, to go from here to there. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what it is to me. And doing it in a way, I use the word inspires and engage purposely, right? Because it's not forcing, it's not driving, it's inspire and engaging people yeah. to get there. That's cool because it aligns with the definition we use at Junto, which I don't even know if you are aware of this, which is moving people in the direction you're going. Wow. Yeah, there you go. And we use moving as double entendre, which is not just moving them in a more tangible way, which is directing them, Mm -hmm. but then secondly, also emotionally moving Mm -hmm. them, Yeah, right? Inspiring them. Yeah. Thank you, Gay. Loved having you on this and uh, appreciate your time. My pleasure. What I appreciate about Gay Vanden Homburg is her determination. She shared a little bit about that with respect to self-determination and choice and uh, choosing how to look at the world and, and um, how to take action and how she gets that from her family. Um, I've had several conversations with her over the years uh, about potentially joining Junto in a much more substantive capacity. And what I've loved is the appreciation she has for not only what we're doing, but also that balance and contrast with her own determination. Uh, she is She's a very focused woman and one who uh, not only knows what she wants, but can also see what other people can have. And uh, it's a real special uh, attribute that of hers, this determination piece. So both of these conversations uh, opened my eyes on a couple of things. Um, One was humility. And we heard a lot from Michael Patak about his humility, as well as my uh, reflections on his humility. And it's interesting because uh, I talked about how that's not a common attribute amongst a lot of traders on the surface. But uh, underneath the surface, it is something that I've seen with uh, a handful of traders, maybe not all of them. And we even heard a little bit about humility uh, from Gay Van and Homburg, especially about the story uh, on how she learned about empathy. And what was particularly interesting to me is that you know Michael kind of tied humility in with open-mindedness and didn't make open-mindedness necessarily something that was uh, driven internally but rather something that is shaped by the circumstances that we live through and that we live with. And uh, what I also found interesting was uh, his introduction of religion and spirituality as a driver of his open-mindedness. 
and uh, his use of this line, which I love and I've never heard before, and that was strong opinions weakly held. And being and staying open to other people, uh, encouraging and and welcoming diversity of thought, and those being kind of real tangible manifestations of his uh, trait of open mindedness, which helps lead to um, to his humility. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I was inspired by in our conversation was when Michael uh, referenced uh, religion and spirituality while we were talking about vision, mission, and values. And I think it's safe to say that there's a lot of correlation there. And as we explore on this podcast, this, this harmony between business and the self, I think there's a really interesting layer uh, where on the business side, we do talk about vision, mission, values. And on the self side, we talk about things like religion and spirituality. And religion tends to be this thing that is more about the circumstances and the context and is, and is external to us. Uh, if we practice a religion or we follow a religion, it exists outside of us and we become um, a disciple of it. Whereas spirituality is something that is more internally driven and uh, we choose how to be spiritual. And many of us have a spiritual practice that is independent of a specific religion. And so as I think about those two things with respect to vision, mission, values, there, there's a lot of correlation there. In most cases, vision, mission, values is very internally driven and things like our strategy or our plan, our business plan, our strategic plan, they tend to be taking into account circumstances, but ultimately kind of bringing this back to the open-mindedness that Michael kind of teed up helps us uh, be more open to different views, different opportunities, different thoughts. And so uh, if we're not... uh, too closely tied into a specific way of thinking, which is sometimes you know what we see with religious zealots um, or people who are uh, practitioners of cults, where there isn't open-mindedness, but instead they're um, they're tied to a very very strict uh, set of beliefs, maybe even values about how to live one's life or or run one's business. And the question there is, can that coexist with humility? Is a strict adherence to a set of beliefs and values that are very rigidly followed able to uh, coexist with this idea of open-mindedness and humility? And and I don't know. uh, It's something that I'm going to have to think a little bit more about, but uh, it's something that's real fascinating. And so uh, I appreciate that Michael teed that up and had different facets to um, the whole concept of of humility. Um, I also, in reflecting on these conversations uh, deepened my appreciation of women and feminine leadership. And, you know, Michael talked about uh, Melissa and the impact that she's had. And we obviously referred to uh, how many women are not only in the business, but on his cap table, which is something I'm going to have to take a peek at because that it was really fascinating. Um, it's not a very big company and, and I know that their cap table isn't, isn't very big, but uh, it was really cool to hear that. And obviously having Gay involved there, who is a very strong-willed, driven woman, yet also has this incredibly empathetic, gentle, and sensitive human side to her. And what I've noticed as I have been doing more and more work in the area of women's leadership um, because of our one of our recent initiatives called Junta Women is they are, and, and I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here, um, they are far more responsive, detailed, caring, and passionate about people in general than we men are. And we have seen in recent years um, a lot of data that demonstrates that having women on on an executive team or having them on a board of directors um, actually produces better results than companies which have no women on them. And as someone who had a woman co-founder with the Junto Institute and uh, who is a business partner for our first four to five years, I can attest to the power of that, that the blend that um, their views bring along with our views as men truly creates something special that we just are not able to do, in my opinion, when it's just a couple of men or, or four men, if you will. And so Michael's acknowledgement of that with Melissa, and he's also shared with me 
through a lot of one-on-one conversations about how much his wife has opened up his eyes to new things in the world, which a lot of us men talk about, um, combined with uh, Gay's experience of kind of being a heavy-handed CEO and learning about empathy the hard way, um, which helped her reveal her feminine uh, leadership perhaps a little bit more, gives me even deeper appreciation for the power that women have to help companies. And so it's something that we're going to keep coming back to. Um, one of our uh, episodes in the next few months uh, is going to actually have my co-founder, Catherine Jelinek, on it. And uh, it's one of the topics that we explore in that conversation. So I'm really excited about, um, about pursuing that. And then finally, um, I was very in- encouraged and inspired by Gay's line about uh, results being a lagging indicator. Uh, we tend to hear from a lot of business leaders, CEOs, entrepreneurs about the focus on results. Like we have to see results, we have to see results. And anybody who has owned a business can acknowledge, and even people who haven't, but I can't speak for them um, because I've never been an, an executive in a larger organization. But having uh, not only uh, run a couple of small businesses myself, but secondly, being around hundreds and hundreds of them over the years, there is no bigger truth than that that results are a lagging indicator of our performance. And this idea of focusing on the people because the results can't happen without the people and the results happen because of the people uh, is, is a pretty powerful yet underrated or underestimated uh, thought and statement. And to hear that someone like Gay, who you know, I don't know uh, how many years of experience she had, I'm guessing probably about 15 to 20 to 25 years of professional experience, before she learned that lesson shows how much we still have yet to learn as uh, executives and business people. And fortunately she did. And you know, what's in, what's so inspiring about that is that today she's in a position and this is about 15 years after she had that, uh, that experience today, she's in this position where she's helping other companies and their leaders become better at who they are and what they do. Uh, so she does a lot of work that's very similar to, Hours at Junto, but for much larger organizations and with a much larger uh, firm. So I appreciate the uh, the lessons that both Michael and Gay uh, taught me through the conversations I had with them, and I'm hoping that uh, some of what inspired me is uh, also able to inspire you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.